Adanair Hawker Sidley is doing a routine cargo flight from London Gatwick to East Midlands Airport when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to crash on its way to drop off cargo? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. Business as usual. And as a matter of fact, it's actually probably going to be kind of a shortish episode. Yeah. We've had a lot of long ones lately, so... We need a break. Yeah. Break, break. <laughs> but that's okay. This one... Yeah. <laughs> It'll be shorter. Great. Is there any housekeeping? Send in your spooky stories, please. I like the spooks. Or whatever the stories. We already got one spooky story. The spooky. The spooky. By the time we recorded this, however... I don't know. Also, I don't know how many of you follow us on the Twitter, but um, we can send you signed ducks. The Twitter is the best thing. Spot our friend and patron, Bob. Yeah. Who has received his ducks. In Ireland. In Ireland. I was just glad they got there. <laughs> yeah. Nope, he got them. Got three signed rubber ducks. If you don't know what episode we referenced that in, neither do I, so. <laughs> yeah. I think it was on a post episode. It was like last year when you got the ducks for your birthday. Yeah, probably. There's a thing in Nick's family about rubber ducks, and they bomb each other with ducks constantly. And then his stepmom, Tiffany, was like, okay, we're done. No more ducks. And I'm like, you thought. (laughs) But watch. So the duck wars continue. You know what you should get them now is like duck rubber duck t-shirts and socks and... Can you stop spoiling all of their Christmas presents? Please (laughs) and thank you. Well, you didn't have to say it was their Christmas presents. <laughs> they don't listen anyway. We won't send them ducks anymore, like physical ducks. We'll just send them duck-themed everything. That's yes. what my thought was. Yes. Yeah. So We have one still very large bag of ducks here. There's another very large bag of ducks somewhere. I don't know. I think we're probably down from 200 down to 150 ducks. Maybe. So we left a lot at your grandmother's. Can very still there. <laughs> we can very easily purchase another bag of ducks. Anytime. So if anyone wants autographed ducks, patron or not, we will send you ducks. Who knew you could buy so many rubber ducks? You need They're tiny, s- but... Yeah, you need to send us your address, though. If you're not a patron. And even if you are a patron and you haven't updated your shipping address... Please do. <clears throat> yeah. We send lots of stuff now. Yes. Tis fun. Tis great. A lot of things. So I, there you go. You get stuff at basically almost every patron level. Anyways. Right. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Dan Eyre... Flight 240. Thank you to our patron, Helen. Yay. I think this is... I figured it was a Helen one. This is not the last in her string. No, I did not think it was. The next episode will be. Ah, okay. This one, if you look up Dan Air and Crash, you will find a lot. Which I've never heard... this will not be one of them. I have never heard of Dan Air before, so... Oh. Well, they're, they're gone. Thanks. But they were actually a pretty popular airline for a long time in the UK. Okay. And they have quite the history of accidents. Not great ones. Are any accidents great? Ones you can walk away from. I guess that's true. And as a matter of fact, if you look up Dan Air Crash and Hawker Sidley, which is what we're talking about, this isn't even the first one that comes up. There's another one. So that's kind of where we're at. So this happened on June 26th of 1981. This was, like I said, a Hawker Sidley. 748, or a BAE 748, they were later known as, with the tail number Golf-Alpha Sierra Papa Lima. This was a cargo flight from London Gatwick 
to East Midlands, or what it was known at the time as Castle Donington. East Midlands is the airport. It was known as the East Midlands Airport, but they referred to it as Castle Donington the whole time. And I was like, okay, everybody just calls it East Midlands these days. Okay. Anyways, the captain for the flight, no names, sorry. He was 36 years old. He had 8,418 hours total, so a decent amount, of which 1,393 hours were on the type. Also a decent amount. Not bad, not bad. The first officer was 29 years old, and he had 5,611 hours total, also not too terrible, of which 1,711 hours were on the type. So he actually had more hours on the type than the captain, but less hours overall. Not the first time we've seen something like that. There was a third crew member on board. They were known as the Postal Assistant. I was wondering what that stood for and didn't bother to look it up. They were known as the Postal Assistant. This was a 20-year-old male. That's all we know. A youngin. Yes. Uh, their entire job, and apparently this was common in the UK, I don't know that it still is, but any time that mail was being transported by an aircraft, it was to be accompanied by a postal assistant. Okay. So a postal assistant is literally just to secure the cargo, make sure that the mail is safe, and makes it to its destination. Question. Is yes. he able to walk through the cargo area? He sits in the cargo area. So, so he can roam about and check on various things? His job is to secure the doors and gotcha. inspect the cargo and make sure that it doesn't light on fire while in flight. Okay. That is literally their job duties. Solid. So he sits watching the cargo. What a boring job. Yes. <laughs> Does he at least get paid well for this? Probably. He gets to fly everywhere too. So, hey, I would do that job. At 20 years old? Heck yeah. They don't do that kind of stuff though. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't security people on certain flights, but it's a whole different thing now. So anyways, there was this postal assistant. They also served sort of as the flight attendant. We'll talk about that. There, there's no people. No, but there are two crew. You'll see. Anyways. What? We're greatly confused. <laughs> the flight departed Gatwick normally at 5.28 p.m. The flight climbed to their planned cruising altitude of 10,000 feet. The flight was scheduled for just under an hour, with their planned arrival time being 6.25 p.m. At 5.57 p.m., the postal assistant got up from his seat and asked the flight crew if they wanted anything to drink. Oh, got it. Makes sense now? I see. I was going to say something like they're going to serve drinks, right? Yeah. He just asked them if they wanted anything to drink. They've got some stuff on board. That's They're not officially a flight attendant, but it is kind of, I think it's more of a courtesy. courtesy thing of like, I'm on board, I can get up, I'm going to get something, you want something. This is also in the time where it wasn't like the worst thing ever to spill a drink on your control column. Yeah. On like... Uh, <coughs> 350s. Yeah, if you, don't, if you haven't heard of that debacle... You can Google that. Look that one up. Anyways, two minutes later, the air traffic controller gave the flight instructions to descend to 6,000 feet to begin their arrival into East Midlands, so they initiated their descent as instructed. The engines were left at their crew's power setting, however, so the plane increased in speed on descent up to 210 knots, not overspeeding, but still pretty quick for their normal descent. At 6.02 p.m., the postal assistant served the crew their drinks. A minute and 38 seconds later, the following conversation took place. Postal assistant. The indicators on the rear port door are showing red. The captain, showing red. Postal assistant. Yeah, it looks as if the it looks as if the handles and that's literally how it's written. Possibly three or four unintelligible words on it are showing red, not normal. There's one handle. Not much of this really made a whole lot of sense, but we're talking about not one of the crew. I mean, yeah, the person who is not crew. Yeah, and is not trained to be inside a cockpit. Right. But he knows enough to know that red indications on the door are a bad thing. Right. Captain said, passenger door, sorry. Postal assistant, yeah. Captain, oh. So all of this happened pretty quick. 
but they noted something was strange. A few moments later, so yes, all this is very confusing, but something seems amiss about all of that. Something is wrong with the door. That's the gist of that. That's not great. A few moments later, the engine power was reduced and the airplane was leveled off in order to allow the airspeed to drop to 140 knots before they began their descent again. We're talking about a twin prop airplane, by the way. Okay, cool. Smaller. Nothing big. So 140 knots is well within their normal speeds. The first officer thought this was happening because of a strong updraft, but the captain explained that he was doing this on purpose because of his concern about the door indication. So he was leveling off and pulling up to reduce speed, and the first officer was all, what, is there an updraft? Is that what's happening? And the captain said, no, I'm there's doing an indication. Intentionally. Yeah. The aircraft was still pressurized at the time, so the captain was concerned about a rapid decompression. The captain then asked the first officer to increase the rate at which the cabin was depressurizing, as it was already in progress for their descent. The captain also asked the postal assistant to remain at the front of the airplane, rather than in the cabin in his seat, monitoring the cargo. Because he was concerned about a door flying off, and a postal assistant going out the door. Yep, that's a valid concern. Yep. Why is he not buckled in a seat? Well... His seat is normally in the cargo area. There is a jump seat, and he later sits there. On the flight deck, specifically. Yes. Oh, okay. So, normally he sits kind of like a flight attendant would in the cabin slash cargo hold. Yeah. But now they're asking him to sit in the jump seat so that, should something happen, he's strapped in and not in the cargo area. Mm-hmm. At 6.06 p.m., the airplane finally leveled off down at 6,000 feet. At 6.08 p.m., the air traffic controller handed the flight off to Donington Approach Control. So, East Midlands. Once the flight made contact with the approach controller, they were cleared to descend down to 3,000 feet and were given the latest weather information for East Midlands. They had been flying at 135 knots while leveled off, but the captain reduced power again as they began descending once more, maintaining 150 knots on this descent. 6.09 p.m. and 30 seconds, while they were passing through 5,450 feet, there was suddenly an enormous noise and the sound of the wind rushing in the cabin. Ah. The aircraft was in the vicinity of Market Brunsworth when witnesses noticed the airplane drop out of the clouds rapidly and flew low and fast over the area. The captain asked the first officer to make a mayday call to the air traffic controller. The captain also asked the postal assistant to strap himself into a seat. The first officer then transmitted to ATC, quote, We'd like to come straight in. We've had a violent depressurization here. It looks as though we've lost our back door and having a severe control problem. So, sorry. I guess I'm a little lost. Is this the door in the cargo area? or yes. Okay. Both are in the cargo area, technically. There's only two doors. The the one that was indicated by the postal assistant, quote-unquote, yes. is in the rear. Yes. Mm. The rear right, specifically. Air traffic control instructed them to descend to 2,000 feet and make a turn to 360 degrees for a straight-in two-nautical-mile final. So, not very far. The first officer acknowledged and then asked for emergency services to be ready upon arrival. The air traffic controller immediately notified the emergency services. A short time later, the air traffic controller noticed the airplane turning further right than instructed on their radar. The air traffic controller made several attempts to contact the flight, but with no reply. Witnesses saw the airplane oscillating in pitch and roll as it flew by. As the airplane recovered from one of its relatively steep dives, the airplane suddenly banked heavily to one side. And actually, there was no consensus on which direction. The airplane then rolled quickly back to level, but at that moment, witnesses saw both wings simultaneously fold upward and break away from the fuselage. What? Several other pieces of the airplane also broke apart as the wreckage fell toward the ground. The airplane 
disappeared from the radar at this point. The wreckage fell into several open fields. The fuel in the wings sparked fires where the wings landed. The crash occurred at 6.10 p.m. and 39 seconds. All three on board perished in this accident. And this was in daylight because this was actually in highest of suns in June. So even at 6-something in the evening, witnesses said it was bright but cloudy. Because they are very far north and it's June. So what caused a depressurization to get so bad that the wings broke off the airplane? It is interesting that you ask that. We shall bring that up. Okay, so this investigation was performed by the AIB, not the AAIB, but their predecessors, and they were able to recover both black boxes, though this aircraft was not required to be equipped with a cockpit voice recorder. But woot to the woot, they had them both. Yep. Woot woot. But let's start with the wreckage, which was strewn over several fields, which means there was an in-flight breakup, and the aircraft did not impact in one piece. The main wreckage site had the fuselage, the vertical stabilizer, which is the vertical part of the tail, as well as the right horizontal stabilizer, though the tail parts were separated from the fuselage, probably at impact. The wings and engines were about 300 yards northwest from the main wreckage and had extensive fire damage. Then the left horizontal stabilizer and its elevator were found 440 yards west of the main wreckage. About 90 yards closer to the fuselage than these parts was something interesting. Normally in episodes, I try to show you some of the rabbit holes that investigators go down. But this one part found near the left tail parts kind of eliminates a lot of rabbit holes. What they had found was the baggage door. Furthermore, many items were found southwest of the main wreckage. More than two miles from the main wreckage was a cardboard box, a Danair bar box tag, and several pieces of plastic door trim from the baggage door. Yep. Suspicious. High key suspicious. But then begs the question, if the baggage door separated in flight, why was it still found with the wreckage? That's a great question, because it, it should have been found farther away. You would think, with all the other things that were found more than two miles away? Did it just open and stay open? No, no. I will get to it. Investigators had to determine how exactly the plane broke up in flight, and maybe that would shed some light. The wings, it turns out, had torn off from overstressing the airframe in the upward direction. Yeah. And same goes for the left tailplane or horizontal stabilizer. I will use these terms interchangeably. I've never heard of tailplane before but that's what that is i'll just talk real quick so they went from six degrees nose down to 34 degrees nose up in five and a half seconds which when they're carrying weight and speed which at the time they were doing 230 knots they were carrying speed through that dive and when you pull up like that all that weight pushes down on your center of gravity which happens to be where the wings are the wings can't support that kind of weight that was an overstress in that quick of a movement the wings folded and like fell off. Like a bird, basically. Yes. There's Ooh. actually a video of a great example of this. It's terrible. It's sad, but it's a C-130 tanker. The right horizontal stabilizer also bent upward, but it didn't break off until impact. Now for that dang door. Quote, the baggage door had suffered severe damage at approximately mid-height, which included crushing and fracture of the edge members and the compression and folding of the outer skin. End quote. But what was more of note were some black rubbery deposits on the damaged outer skin. So investigators took some samples and ran some chemical analysis, which did come back as rubber, but more specifically, the rubber from a tail section de-icing boot. Hmm. And more specifically, the boot of the tail. 
So the door separated and hit the tail, probably the tail on the right side. Yeah, that would be problematic in flight. So it got stuck on the tail? Yes. Oh. But how did this all go down? The main door attachment assembly was found still attached to the fuselage, and the outer door attachment pivot points had failed in overload. Based on the location of the door near the main wreckage and the trimming more than two miles away, investigators determined that the door detached at about the time the whole flight started going into chaos, but it had been open for some time before that. Once they reviewed the cockpit voice recorder, they determined that the door had actually been open for about 63 seconds before the catastrophic failure and descent. Because the door was still with the wreckage, investigators narrowed down the possibilities for a series of events to either the door opened but stayed attached until the same time the wings failed, or it separated and became caught on something on the plane. The plane clearly became difficult to handle after the door opened, but that could support either theory. Now, if you're anything like Miranda, which I wrote this script knowing Miranda would have guessed by now, you probably already have a theory based on the clues I've already given you. You think that the door detached and became stuck on the tail, since it has the black mark from the leading edge of the horizontal stabilizer, and this would drastically alter the performance characteristics of the aircraft, and you would be correct. Yep. Well, investigators thought this too, and decided to look at the right horizontal stabilizer to see if it would support this series of events. But the damage from the impact was too great to conclude if that indeed was what happened. Yeah, that's really the only thing that makes sense. Now here's something that might make you, uh, mad. The baggage door had come open in flight before. What? Not once, not twice, but in history on various aircraft, 36 times. Was it just not closed all the way? Like, I guess I don't understand why it's opening. That's where we're going next. But none of those times, nor in a wind tunnel testing scenario, had it brought down the plane or created handling problems. So something quote-unquote more unusual occurred. These same wind tunnel tests proved that if the baggage door did become affixed to the tail's leading edge, the problems were similar to what the flight data recorder showed happened. So investigators determined that although the evidence was technically circumstantial, and they didn't have evidence from the tail to back it up, the baggage door was torn off its hinges and it struck and remained lodged on the leading edge of the right tailplane. It was at this time they also determined that the crew was in no way at fault because no one could have handled the situation so close to the ground. That being said, this had happened with the door becoming lodged in the tail, not once, but twice previously. The first time, the pilot had some control and successfully completed a forced landing. The second time, it had just taken off and they were able to turn back to the same runway and land. Investigators suspect that these were relatively successful events because the airspeed was low and the takeoff flaps had not yet been retracted. Hmm. So they had more control over their aircraft than uh, this. Yeah. But for the life of them, investigators could not figure out how exactly the door failed. Something that will be of significance to our avid listeners was that everything failed in overload, meaning there wasn't any fatigue failure. Oh, you're right. There was no sign of pre-existing structural weakness. So investigators narrowed it to the following three reasons. One, someone on board unlocked the door. That would be one of my guesses too. Like someone accidentally didn't lock the door. Option two, the door had been closed without fully over-centering the door catches. Or three, albeit paraphrased, some weird <laughs> happened inside the door. <laughs> uh, I like that one. <laughs> there are a multitude of reasons that the first case is invalid. For one, everyone on board was on the flight deck at the time of the failure. 
Oh, that's true. And if that had happened, the door would have immediately blown off, not taken a full minute between door failure and separation. I guess that's true. Now, situation two takes a little bit of explaining. There are four claw catches on this door design, and each claw... Oh, wait a minute. I remember something about this. I don't think it was this flight. It was one of those other flights that this happened on. (laughs) This is not to give away too much, although we've talked about it. Very similar to our DC-10 problem. Yes. Yes. Very similar. So, as I was saying, there are four claw catches on this door design, and each claw has a linkage system to help it shut. The problem with linkages is sometimes they go the opposite way you intend. Miranda, can you aid my failing brain in describing the difference between how a correctly locked and over-centered claw looks and an, I guess, under-centered claw? The little mechanism that's holding it in is curved on the one that's not correct. Okay. And the other one is sunk in, if that makes sense. Look at the pictures on the website. It's really hard to describe this stuff. If this is what happened, the only thing holding the door shut is the friction between the claw and the door, something that the cabin pressurization would have overcome. In fact, this accounted for the majority of the door openings I had mentioned earlier, where the door opened after pressurization, just after climb. Here's why that's a problem here. They were landing. Yeah. They had already been pressurized for quite some time. So there goes that theory, which leaves option three. Something weird happened. Some weird (laughs) happened in the door. (laughs) (laughs) Which I I bet a lot of you predicted was probably going to be the answer. So in order to find out what exactly happened, investigators decided to rebuild the damaged door to more accurately determine its pre-flight condition. In doing so, they found that the top pair and the bottom pair of claws were not in sync with each other. So when the outside door handle was shut, the bottom two claws locked properly, but the upper two did not over-center. With this exact configuration of bottom locking and upper knot, it increased one of the rod lengths, and the secondary locking plungers didn't engage on any of the claws, even though the bottom two were locked correctly. Investigators found that you could still correctly lock the door using the inside handle, but you had to put a lot of pressure to do so. Crews outside of the plane were the ones who closed the aircraft. Mm. To preserve evidence, investigators brought in a replica door and configured it to the same unsynchronized state and subjected it to pressure tests and found something really interesting. The door endured pressurization just fine, but when depressurizing, all four catches suddenly released and the door opened. That's horrifying. Yep. And when it was at only one PSI differential between inside and outside an aircraft. You know, that would happen on descent. Yep. Yes. So, how did it become unsynchronized, desynchronized? I googled which word is correct. We spent a while on this. No one knows what is the correct terminology. So, anyway, how did it become unsynchronized? The report didn't dwell too much on this aspect. And basically said it had to do with a misrigging of the locking mechanism, and that's about all they said. They couldn't determine when it happened, who did it, it happened. Fantastic. So, now any flight attendants who might be listening are thinking, there are door unsafe indications on the inside. Why didn't those show that the door wasn't fully locked? And here's a thorough can of worms. A can of worms that investigators said was actually more of a problem than the unsynchronized state of the clock catches. Why was the aircraft allowed to take off with a door not being locked properly? Fine, it's not locked properly, but why did they take off anyway? The mechanical indicators on the door itself, of which there are two, are called drums, and they show red when the door isn't locked, and stripes yellow and green when it is. 
There are pictures of this on the website for reference. Under the circumstances known to investigators, the drum would have shown mostly red and a little bit of the striped section. So why was that deemed safe? Well, that's not what Cruz actually saw. It turns out that the viewing window for the indicators were not oriented properly, showing a different angle of the drum, more of the yellow-green than the red. Furthermore, the drums were manufactured so that the red was painted over the stripes, so when wear and tear caused the red paint to be scratched away, it showed more of the yellow-green stripes. What? And the rear vestibule was poorly lit on top of everything else. Yeah, I actually remember this. There's an air disaster episode on this, and I remember it being really stupid that they decided... I didn't see any air disasters episode. It might be a Mayday episode. Okay. Anyway. It it might be. I remember watching something about it, but I remember they had to look in this tiny little hole to see the thing, to see if it was good, and they couldn't see anything, and then this happened, and I was like, this is really stupid. Which on a lot of airplanes, they still have that tiny little hole with the stripe indicator. So basically now the indicators are showing more yellow-green striping than red even though that's not what it should be showing. When interviewed, Cruz also said that they were used to seeing a small amount of red on the indicator, and they thought it was still safe, as it just did that sometimes. Nothing like the excuse of, it just does that sometimes. (sighs) It just be that way. It just be that way sometimes. But it's not that way. The postal assistant on board probably noticed that the indicators were red from seeing them from a different angle, as well as there is evidence that the drums can jostle a bit in turbulence and show more or less of the red. And now pilots are yelling that there should also be a warning system on the flight deck for an open door. That would be great. Was it lit when they took off? We have no idea. The CBR only records the last 30 minutes of flight. Oh, right. The investigators also couldn't recover enough of the relevant wiring between the door and the cockpit to determine if there was a fault in the warning system. It's nice. So they did not reach any conclusions there. And that's all I've got. That's great. Isn't it? No. So I can tell you that they speak about one in the findings, one of the reasons they believe this happened. Okay. The the red red paint thing. I would think you'd want to put the red paint under the yellow and green. You would think, right? Or at least put a neutral color so you know that it's scratching away and not just the other color. That just seems really stupid. So, yeah, that, that's that's what I got. There's pictures on the website. I highly recommend you look at them, especially for the claw catching system, because that's really hard to explain. All or, right. like I said, it might have been another one of the accidents you were talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. But it was the same problem. Yeah. I I'm... just remember the little viewing window thing and a guy looking in there and being like, it's fine, and it wasn't fine. It wasn't fine. It wasn't fine. Not fine. Distinctly not fine. Actually, I think we talked about that on one of the DC-10s. Yes. Did we? Yeah. It yeah. might have been the DC-10 then. Yeah. We definitely talked about it on a DC-10 where that little indicator was wrong. Yes. In this... It wasn't actually indicating the door was completely latched the way it was now, supposed to be. Now, I want to emphasize that in this instance, these two indicators are on the inside of the door. Which is why the postal right. assistant was able to see them. Right. These are not the outside of the door indications for the outer crew. Yeah. Right. Okay. We're going to take a brick break. Break it back. And we'll be back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And we're back. For some figurative findings. Figurative findings. There were not a whole lot of uh, 
were not a whole lot of findings or recommendations. I think there were 16 findings, but I'm not doing all 16. They found that the baggage door opened during the initial descent into the destination airfield, separated from its hinge assembly, and then struck and remained fixed to the leading edge of the right tailplane. They found that the presence of the door on the tailplane modified the airflow in such a way that the aircraft became uncontrollable. They found that the aircraft became overstressed during a series of involuntary violent pitch oscillations and suffered a complete structural failure so this was not any sort of maneuver they were trying to do nope it was all just airflow well because when you think about it the elevators which are used to control pitch are on the tail if you have a tail completely blocked yeah yeah it makes it really hard to control and it's also on only one side so it's also causing them even worse causing them to yaw and roll it's It's a bad time yeah it's a real bad time They found that the door opened as a result of the release of the four claw catches. The unusual circumstances of its opening during cabin depressurization were the result of the top pair of claws not being geometrically locked while the bottom pair were over-centered, with the secondary locks disengaged. And this is where things get interesting. They found that the unlock condition was present when the aircraft started its flight and was made possible by a misrigging in the primary lock mechanism, which allowed the top and bottom pair of claw catches to lose their synchronization. Again, that's literally all they say. Yes. They don't say when it happened, who did it. They have a theory. Again, we'll get there. They found that it was not possible to determine whether the flight deck warning light was illuminated at the time of departure. So they had literally no way of knowing if the light was on about the door. Yeah, if the crew. When they left. Yeah. Yep. They found that the crew were unaware until a late stage in the flight of the unsafe condition of the baggage door. And this was due to a combination of shortcomings in the design, construction, and maintenance of the door warning system and the appearance of the visual indications. All around it just wasn't designed super well. They found that there was insufficient guidance in the maintenance manual to ensure that the mechanical indicators viewing windows were correctly oriented. Orientated. Yes, orientated. <laughs> Sorry. It's the same thing. They mean the thing. same thing. I know. That's I just... hate when you do that to me. I'm like, the word means the same thing as the word that's written. <laughs> Certified and certificated. Oh, I two existing words. Anti-D on complification. Oh, anti-decomplification. That, that hasn't come back for a while. Nope. I thought we all forgot about that. No, I never uh, forgot. Oh, no. It will never be forgotten. I'm going to no. put it on a t-shirt, so uh, it will never be forgotten. Anyway, so what they're saying there is, you remember how I said the viewing windows were installed incorrectly? Yeah. There was nothing that really said how to install them correctly. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Really? It, it, you had a 50-50 shot. Upside down or not? All right. You ready for their possible theory? Sure. They found that the condition of operating the mechanism made it impossible to lock the door fully using the outside handle. However, the door was capable of being fully locked by the inside handle. Well, I talked about this. It's not, like, revolutionary. Right. But, so they found the door was probably last closed from the outside. That's what I said. And at the same appreciable time before the aircraft's departure. Right. I I literally said all that. Yes. But point is, is their theory is wholly having to do with, yes, it was designed poorly, and it was locked from the outside, where it couldn't be. Well, yes. I thought you were going to get at who misrigged it. Oh, no, no. No, no. It was designed that Did way. you get that sense? That's that what he was talking no. about? Okay. Maybe it was designed misrigged. No, it was not designed misrigged. It was misrigged. Well, yes, but it was designed in a way that could be misrigged, which yes. is the problem, is my point. It was found not possible to establish when the door operating mechanism was last rigged, and they found that all crew members were on the flight deck when the door opened. The crew reacted properly to the door unsafe condition, and within the knowledge then available, took appropriate action to minimize the risk to the aircraft. Ultimately, this is to say that they 
actually try to do everything correctly. Yeah. So they don't it, put any blame on the crew. No, it wasn't their means. fault. How could you deal with that? Right. This was nothing. This was not in their control at all. The only thing I can say, because it wasn't anything they intended, the reason that the door came off was because of the quick depressurization. No, it would have done it on depressurization regardless. It would have, but they might have been going at a slower speed at a lower altitude at some point. They decided, the captain decided to depressurize the airplane faster, so it happened higher and faster. That's the only reason that this was a bigger problem. Well, from what I understand, it would have happened in, under any depressurization circumstances, Correct. and they tried it in a bunch. Yeah, and that much is true, but he did decide to depressurize the airplane sooner yeah, but than the, I mean, the door would have opened, but that doesn't mean it would have came off if they were know. going slower. Odds the are door probably, would have opened. Odds are it probably would have, but who knows how it would have ended up if they were going at a slower speed. Because they weren't. So. And I didn't read enough into the simulations to know. But anyways, that doesn't really matter. I mean, ultimately, it's a moot point because it still happened. And it was happening a lot on airplanes. This just happened to be the one time that it happened on descent. Yes. So the bigger problem doesn't have anything to do with the crew. It has to do with the design of the door. Of the door. The accident was caused by the baggage door becoming lodged on the leading edge of the right tailplane after it had opened and detached in flight. This produces this produced changes in the aerodynamic characteristics of the aircraft, which rendered it uncontrollable, resulting in overstressing of the wings and tailplane, leading to an in-flight structural failure. A contributing factor was the misrigged state of the door operating mechanism, which allowed the top and bottom pairs of claw catches to lose synchronization. The failure of the door warning arrangement to give adequate warning of door safety was a further contributory factor. Pretty straightforward. It was a really straightforward one, honestly. They blamed the door. Yep. Because it was the, the door. door. The door. There's only five recommendations. Ah. <laughs> they recommend a review be conducted on the BAE 748 door indicating and warning systems to remove unreliable and ambiguous indications and appearances with particular reference to A. The desirability of making the critical elements of locking mechanisms visible from the inside of the aircraft. Making sure they can actually see the indication. Well, to make sure that they can see the actual locking mechanism, right, not that's just true. the indication. Yes. So they didn't even, yeah, so they can see everything. B, improving the operation of the, me the mechanical indicators to give a positive indication only when the door is completely safe. And C, the barometric and speed locks, if fitted, be less critically dependent on the exact position of the secondary locks for engagement to be possible. So making so sure that it always locks. Well, and not only that, but there, so there are backups of the primary locks. There's the secondary locks. There's this barometric, or I would put it tertiary lock. Yep. Making it so that they are not reliant on the previous locking mechanism to be in place. Right. So you can't have the tertiary lock be reliant on the secondary lock being in a good position because then what's the point of having a backup if it relies on something not failing? Right. That is completely true. They recommend the electrical warning system be reviewed to improve the reliability in flight deck warnings and to assist in identifying the location of any unsafe lock. Just improving overall how they tell if a door is unsafe, which makes sense. And these days, there's a lot more sensors Absolutely. and indications of this. And there are also totally different mechanisms for securing these doors. So made a big change. They recommend that the CAA and the manufacturer review the BAE 748 approved maintenance manual to improve the guidance to operators and personnel on fault diagnosis and wear limits on the more subtle mechanical systems of the aircraft, such as the door mechanism. In other words, don't rig it wrong. Well, yeah. Don't rig it wrong and then know when to recognize signs of wear and tear like on those indicators. Yeah, the indicators when the indicators are failing. 
Yeah. They recommend that the CAA discuss with operators and manufacturers the introduction of an effective system to identify, analyze, and eliminate recurring defects, i.e. 36 occasions of doors failing in flight. Yeah, like, clearly this is a problem. Maybe you should figure out how to fix it. No friggin' kidding. I think, wasn't the solution that they don't have the hooks anymore? They it's, close the door a different way or something like that. A lot I, of airplanes have a very different mechanism for closing. I can't I yes. can't remember exactly what it was that changed, but I do remember they just redid the entire door so this just doesn't happen anymore. Basically. Well, yeah, and a big part of it, like last time, was a linkage locking mechanism. Right. And part of what you learn in like some basic statics, mechanical elements, engineering classes, linkages don't always do what you want them to. No. Yes, you have an intended direction, but there's a reverse of that direction right and in this case that's what happened right think of your chain on your bike and how if you were to send that chain backwards it's more than likely going to fall off of the areas it's supposed to be that's because the linkage is intended to go one direction but not the other and finally they recommend that the mor system be extended to require uk aircraft manufacturers to supply information on occurrences to their aircraft operating on overseas registers which come to their notice i'm assuming this is intending notifying when a problem is occurring regularly, even if it's international. Yeah, they probably yeah. didn't recognize all 36 instances. Because if it happened while the aircraft was not in the UK, do they have to report it to the UK? Hmm, and the that's manufacturer? a fantastic question. They, they should, should probably report it to like the ICAO or something. So it's international, would be my guess. Well, it sounds like they didn't have any kind of system. Well, no. You're so... right. Because it happened... 36 times? Over 30 times. Yeah, that's... Well, right. And so the more what I think they're getting at here, too, is that there are owners of these aircrafts overseas, and the manufacturer is letting their UK operators know, hey, there's a problem. But are they letting everybody else know, too? Oh, jeez. It's an entire reporting system. That's how the AD system works, is that applies worldwide. Yeah, everything now is international. Yeah, typically, if an FAA AD comes out, while that's U.S. only, the manufacturer will choose to distribute distribute that AD worldwide because like, that hey, is a problem. Here's a problem that you should most likely fix. Yeah, airworthiness isn't it directives that if, are important. Isn't that isn't it that if they fly in the United States, it also has to be on their aircraft too? Is that is that a true thing? Yes. Well, okay, so let's say you're an international carrier, like Mm -hmm. Korean Air, okay? Yes. Just pulling out something out my butt, okay? Korean Air. They fly to the United States. Sure. Let's say the FAA puts an AD out on... Which stands for Airworthiness Directive, in case you're new here. Yes. An AD out on, I don't know, 37s. They probably wouldn't fly, or 47s or whatever. Sure. Right? Wouldn't Korean Air have to take that AD because they fly to the United States? Yes, they have to comply because they have to comply with all FAA regulations to operate in the United States. Okay. Which is why there are certain international carriers that are not allowed in the United States. Yes. Russia. Yeah. Some are allowed in. (laughs) Aeroflot's allowed to fly in the United States. They're an FAA. Yeah. I'm not saying all. But Russia. there are a chunk. <laughs> There's a chunk from Russia that are not allowed to fly to the United States because they don't comply with FAA. Their planes don't comply. Lately, in, in most recent aviation history, the airlines that are most regularly banned from the United States are Venezuelan and Cuban. Oh, yeah. And recently, Pakistani? That's a whole uh, scandal and a half. Yeah. Mess. Mess. So anyway... That's it. That's the whole thing. That's yeah. Then Air Flight 240. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening. I realize this is a short episode, but believe us when we say we're tired. Ooh, here's a good thing. You should tell us how you found our podcast, either on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can email us. Whatever it is. (laughs) Whatever. You should let us know how you found us. And when. How long have you been around? Yeah. Because some of our patrons, we've asked we've asked them that. Because we're curious, honestly. Take that extra time you have now. <laughs> and let us know how you heard about us. Don't do it if you're driving. If you're driving. Please don't. <laughs> wait till you're at a stoplight. Wait till you get to work. Wait till you get no, somewhere. No, do it right now. No, right stop. Now. No. Don't listen to Nick. Please don't crash and die. Thanks. This I don't want to be responsible for your death, so please don't. Our public service announcement. Take, take a pause from your cleaning regimen, if that's what you're doing. Yeah. I don't know. Let us know. All right, friendos. All right. With that being said, check out the Patreon. We haven't said that in a while. We haven't yeah. had Brendan on in a while. That's that true. is true. But you check out everything. We have literally hundreds of hours of content on there. Yeah. That's extra from the normal episodes. So if you need more to listen to, check it out. See what's included. Also, check out the newsletter. You can subscribe to that at any point during the month. You'll get the one next month. It tells you what to look forward to. It tells you what we covered already. It tells you a little tidbit of the month and then some Patreon-exclusive stuff in case you want to know. And then it also tells you the story theme, too, for the next month. Although we don't really... We have spooky stories again for October, which I love anyway, so... And check out the merch page on the website. Which apparently is now going to have the stupid phrase on it. Yes. Anti-D uncomplication. Uncomplification. You're gonna have to that was from Miranda Sode 2, by the way. Yeah. You're going to have to split that into multiple lines on a shirt. Yeah, it's probably. Anti-D uncomplification. Yeah. It, it'll be anti-D uncomplification. <laughs> <laughs> In big letters. Just to piss Christy off. Okay. Woo-hoo! Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> have a great week, and we hope to catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.